Hello and welcome to the World Fellows podcast. My name is Emma Skye and I'm director of the World Fellows program at Yale. My guest today is Udo Jude Ilo, the head of the Nigeria office for the Open Society Initiative for West Africa. Udo, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Emma, for having me. So, Udo, tell us a bit about you know your childhood. What was it like to grow up in Nigeria, and what did you want to be? Thank you, Emma. Um, I'm the last of a family of six children, uh, and I came in five years. Uh, there's a five-year difference between me and my immediate elder sister, so I always make the joke that I'm, I was a romantic mistake. Uh but also the baby of the house, and that allowed me a lot of great time with my parents, my dad, uh, who I get to take long walks in the evening with. And I come from quite a religious Catholic family. And so understandably, I wanted to be a priest when I was growing up. Uh, I used to celebrate Mass as a kid, you know, mock uh, church services. Uh, so I entered the seminary hoping to become a priest, uh, but I think there was a trait in me that was a problem. I was too rebellious and, <laughs> and a bit very critical of, of authorities. And um, the, the Catholic priesthood requires some, some level of uh, obedience, which wasn't my biggest uh, exports. And so while I was in the seminary, I realized that perhaps I may seek uh, a profession in a field where I get to argue a lot, shout a lot, and uh, disobey a lot. That was how I decided to join the, you know, enter the university to read law. Uh, but again, that was a second element. Uh, my father was very big on social justice, uh, very big on uh, supporting people and lifting people up. And I felt the law profession would give me the background and the platform to do just that. And that was how I ended up going to read law. But you may have studied law, but it seems that you got into the whole democracy world. How did that happen? Uh, a, lot of, a lot of the credit will go to my constitutional law lecturer in my second year in the, in the university. Uh, he was the one that taught me human rights. Uh, and I, I was quite fascinated, you know, by, by just the, the profound nature of the values that underpin the whole concept of human rights. And of course, the intricate relationship with democracy as a framework within which that human rights can be protected. I was in the university at a time when Nigeria was in one of its worst di dictatorships. Uh, and, but there was an incident that actually kind of made me realize that perhaps I'm supposed to do this. And so at the time, the then military uh, president of Nigeria, General Sani Abacha, wanted to become a civilian president. And they were sharing money across universities and getting young people like myself to march and declare that we want them to become, we wanted him to become uh, the civilian president. And because I tried to hang out with the cool kids in school, one of those days we were talked into organizing a rally for Sani Abacha. And I wore this T-shirt with his name printed on it 
And a good friend of mine saw me and said, oh, I would have expected others to do this, but not you. And it was, I felt so ashamed. It was one of my <laughs> most embarrassing moments. I never asked her why she felt I, I wouldn't be one of those doing that. But it just made me realize that everything that I valued, the way I was brought up, and this was somebody that knows my family, just wasn't, uh, it wasn't a path anybody would think of me to take. And I felt I had disappointed my values and disappointed my family by going to join that rally. And I guess that was the last time I ever donned a t-shirt for anybody whose values I don't ascribe to. And uh, following that incident, I realized that a lot more was expected of me and perhaps maybe the way I've carried myself, the way I've spoken, because then I was the attorney general of the Lost Students Association. Maybe the way I carried myself has suggested to people that there was something different I could do from whatever the person was doing. And so it was, it was the second incident uh, related to my work in, uh, as the attorney general, my professor on constitutional law. And then eventually my first job just did it for me because I went to work with an organization that was committed to using law to protect and promote democracy. And my first assignment was to analyze the 20, 2003 elections in Nigeria. And that was how we started. So what sort of work have you been involved in? Uh, there's been the mundane, the exciting, and the not so exciting. But I think I would, I would frame my work over the last 18 to 19 years in three ways. One is the work around amplifying citizens' voices and placing, placing them at the center of democracy, at the center of governance. And the second one is engaging with government to ensure policies, uh, laws, and uh, initiatives that protect and sustain a vibrant civic space. Uh, the third one would be the work of supporting the fields and helping to birth or, or support the growth of social entrepreneurs and uh, civil society organizations committed to promoting democracy. Uh, there's a trend there's, there's a trend that runs around these three ideas, and that is, of course, a democracy that is at the service of the people. Uh, and in doing this work, we've worked with the media people to ensure that the media space is free, uh, to protect them when there is government overreach, to help promote uh, the values of free press, free expression, but most importantly, to help create global and local solidarity for people who are in the front line. Uh, with citizens helping to open up the space for freedom of information so they can know what is happening, working towards ensuring a, a, an education curriculum that optimizes knowledge around civics, uh, working to ensure that young people can have internships that allow them the opportunity to learn and uh, me get mentoring from those who have been in the field before them. So kind of an intergenerational transfer of skills 
Uh, we've tried to do that over the years to make sure that the old breed of activists who are getting old and leaving the field don't leave too much of a, of a gap in the system that then makes it impossible to find rallying voices for the people. And uh, of course, uh, being opportune to work in a grant-making organization, utilizing the power of financial resources to give voice, strength, and space for young people, young organizations who are trying to get into the field and work towards an establishment of a society that works for all. And so straddling uh, all of this field, building partnership among civil society and government agencies, uh, building partnership among the entertainment industry and uh, the CSO world, you know, being able to sit in, 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 in a place where I can pull all of these resources together in a bit of a, harmoni a harmonious tone that allows for much more impactful engagement of governance process in my region. Now, you are from a specific region in Nigeria, which has had a, you know, a particular history. Can you tell us a bit about that and how that has shaped who you are and the values that you have and the work that you do? Thank you, Emma. Um, in 1966, a number of uh, military officers in Nigeria and decided to carry out what was the first military coup d'etat in Nigeria because of the inability of the politicians to work out conflicts arising from the from the election. Uh, the cases of corruption that was happening across the country and ethnic and religious uh, divisions that we are growing within Nigeria. And so these young, ambitious military officers felt that they had a call to right the wrong and make sure that the Nigeria state, which was still in its infant age, is able to survive. Unfortunately, the coup was not very successful. Um, some of those who were supposed to carry out strikes in the eastern part of the country didn't do it. And it turned out that most of the senior political officers that were killed came from the northern and western part of the country. And people who wanted to demonize the coup decided to frame it as an Igbo coup, a coup d'etat carried out by military officers of um, Igbo extraction, which wasn't entirely true because there were military officers from other parts of the country. But it became the dominant narrative and fed the already existing distrust within the northern part of the country. And there was a counter coup d'etat that led to the assassination of the head of state, who then was from the southeast of Nigeria. But then there was a program, uh, which was a, a, an indiscriminate slaughter of people of Igbo origin in the northern part of the country. And the inability of the then leadership of uh, Gawon, uh, as a head of state, to stem these killings, uh, created a massive exodus of people of Igbo extraction back to the southeast. And the, the absence of uh, assurances of safety led to the declaration of the state of uh, Biafra as an independent country. 
And Nigeria then declared a military action to reclaim the lost territory. Uh, also to mention that there were a lot of international efforts to ameliorate and you know deal with this challenge, one of which was the infamous Aburi Accord, which created a framework that allows for a quasi-confederal system of government uh, that would then allow the, the Nigerian state to renegotiate the kind of relationship they wanted, but in the interim, stem the growing tension and the volatility in the country. And the Nigerian government refused to honor that agreement, and that led to the declaration of Biafra and then the civil war, of which uh, the Nigerian government employed blockade, hunger as a tool of war, that led to the death of more than one million Biafran kids who died of malnutrition within the 30 months of the civil war. In total, the casualty figure for the war stands between two to three million. Uh, most of that uh, happening in the Southeast, which was the theater of, of, of that war. And of course, after the war, the government wanted to reintegrate the Eastern part of the country, but the damage uh, to the psyche of my people and the damage to relationship within the country was never really resolved. And there was never a conversation uh, to reconcile the country. Uh, we tried to bury what happened and move on. And it's continued to fester. And people in the Southeast have this feeling of being marginalized and not wanted or welcomed within the larger Nigerian states. And that has been the source of our problem. And currently the agitation by some young people in the Southeast for the Republic of Biafra. Um, but, uh, while the war was a painful experience for my family, uh, I lost two uncles in the war, the two people that trained my father. Uh, it was also something that was, uh, reinforced, you know, the power of community because of the help and supports we received, both in Nigeria, but, uh, by our neighbors, uh, in, in, in the then Biafran state, but internationally. Uh, soldiers, uh, pilots, humanitarians, doctors, all coming in to risk their lives and support people that they don't even know. And, you know, that humanity, that power of community in, in that uh, uh, remarkable and selfless manifestation became also a lesson for a lot of people who grew up after the war, like myself understanding that we just have to be there for each other and that what happens to the eyes affects the nose and the mutuality of our human existence means that what if my neighbor is hungry then i'm also hungry and that has been one of the philosophies guiding my own life and work you know millions of people around the world know about the biafran war through the works of chinue achebe things fall apart now you yourself are also a writer and a poet. And you've been writing about loss, love, and life. And I'd like if you could read us one of your poems and explain why you're choosing this poem. Okay. You know, uh, the poem I'm going to read is, you know, is something that came out of my own reflections about the tenuous nature of life 
the fact that you know we're here one day and then we're not and what is important for me as a person you know walking this path and so it is titled uh, a space in the sands of time someday my music will stop this tender heart will lose its rhythm my mind will be an empty space my laughter will cease my eyes will no longer be a mirror into my soul. This body will just be an empty shell, only good enough for the maggots. I will be unable to tell my story or change my story. I will be unable to say I love you. Everything I owned and love will stand by and watch me go. My story will be a book of the past. I will cease to be a part of the present. What will remain of me is the memory I've created for others, how I made them feel, how well I loved or failed to love. The things I did for others will count for me. Nobody will remember me for the things I did for myself. My journey through life will only matter if it made someone else better. I came here alone, I will live alone, but my greatest legacy will be the mark I make in the soul of the next person. When that time comes for me, I pray I may be worthy of tears and a space in the sands of time. That's really beautiful. And you dedicated your book to your daughter, Natasha. Yes. Tell us about Natasha. Okay, um, Natasha, is my second daughter. Uh, sometimes when I talk about her, I go between the past and the present. Uh, so pardon me. Uh, and uh, when she was two years and a half, I would lost her in a tragic uh, swimming accident. Uh, but uh, we remember her more not by the way she died, or her, long, her very short existence, but more about the bubbly, lovely, exciting person that she was, the one that wakes you up in the morning with music and gets to sleep at night with dancing. You know, the girl that is ever cheerful, but so, so sensitive to everything around her. She doesn't want anybody to be sad. And even in those tender age, uh, she was interested in knowing how I was feeling or how the mother is feeling or how the sister is feeling. I remember if we, we, we tried to punish her elder sister or ask her to go and have a, a time out, she would go and sit with the other sister in that corner until you lift the ban. So she was, that's that lovely soul, very much into kids, loved kids so much. And the interesting thing was that she was tiny and then she was calling people bigger than her babies. But, you know, that was who she was and had this maternal instinct every time to hold every kid or try to share whatever she had with them. So she was a very lovely girl uh, who also taught us how to love unconditionally, who taught us that we don't have a lot of time and taught us about making the best of the little time we have with people we love. So uh, remembering her is celebrating love and also celebrating an exciting hope for what lies beyond the skies. Hopefully another hug from her someday.
Well, thank you, Udo. We celebrate Natasha. And when we think of you, we think of resilience and we think of love. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, Emma.